Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. Thanks so much for joining us today. On our show last week, we spoke to Tom Comerford, a medical malpractice plaintiff's attorney, who told us about medical malpractice from the plaintiff's attorney's perspective. We learned how he sees patient after patient coming to him with claims of malpractice. Now he turns down the, the great majority of these, these cases, uh, focusing on ones that are truly meritorious, where, where the doctor somehow made a mistake and where the patient truly was injured by that error. Well, today's show, we're going to get a whole different perspective on the medical malpractice problem. We're going to be speaking to Dr. Jeff Siegel. Jeff is a a neurosurgeon who started a company called Medical Justice. Medical Justice is devoted to helping doctors avoid frivolous malpractice suits. So he's seeing the same problem, medical malpractice, from a completely different point of view than our plaintiff's attorney guest that we had at the last visit. This difference in perspective is very common in a complex medical health system. It's not just malpractice that, that, that has these kinds of differences in perspective. There's lots of times in life when people from different groups have different perspectives. And what I'm always amazed by when I talk to people who would seem to be at complete odds with each other is that both groups see themselves as very good people, always devoted to patients' interests, and they actually have a lot of common ground, making me very optimistic that many of these conflicts that we see in the world today are going to be things that we can get past, where we can get health care reform that really will be helpful to us. Because we all know that we need it, that our system is, is, is too expensive, has too many problems, too few people... Um, uh, too many people don't have access to the system, and yet we see so much conflict about how to resolve it. Well, I tell you, there is common ground. If we can find common ground between medical malpractice plaintiff's attorneys and the guys who want to end uh, medical malpractice judgments against doctors, boy, I think there's, there's hope overall. When we talk to Jeff, we're going to cover the startling idea of having patients sign contracts before they um, see the doctor. Um, contracts that discuss aspects of how malpractice complaints against the doctor um, will be handled. And I, and I think this is fascinating that, um, that some doctors are choosing to do this and patients are signing these contracts. Let, let's, let's hear more about that. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. Well, what you do at Medical Justice sounds so interesting. Can you just give us a brief introduction about what Medical Justice is? Yeah, let me tell you briefly what it is, and then um, I'll tell you how I got to this point. 
So very briefly, Medical Justice is an organization of physicians for physicians, the goal of which is to keep doctors from being sued for frivolous reasons. And so, of course, uh, frivolous is in the eye of the beholder, uh, but what we've seen historically is that there are, there are so many physicians that um, have been exposed to what they perceive to be a capricious medical legal system, and because it's unpredictable, we believe it doesn't work well for both patients and doctors, and time permits, we can talk about a better system we would advocate. Uh, but in short, our goal is to keep doctors from being sued for frivolous reasons. Now, very briefly, how did I get here? Um, turns out I was pretty happy practicing as a neurosurgeon uh, for a number of years. I practiced in Indiana, a state that has implemented fairly substantive tort reforms, which made it pretty easy to practice uh, medicine uh, as a doctor. And nonetheless, I was still sued one time. I thought the case was frivolous. The single expert who had been hired to testify against me had actually been expelled from our medical professional society uh, for delivering frivolous testimony. Wow. He had never seen the procedure or done the procedure um, in the case at issue. Um, the case ultimately went away two weeks before trial, but I didn't feel as if I won, it, won anything. I just felt as if I lost less. Mm-hmm. How often are, are doctors sued? Is this some, a, a common event? Uh, surprisingly, yes. Um, if you look at the numbers, the average doctor is sued at a rate of anywhere between 8 and 10% a year. Um, that's a pretty large number. Of course, it varies by specialty and it varies uh, by geography. Some states um, are, are, are more litigious than other states. Uh, for example, people typically think of New York and New Jersey as being uh, more litigious than other states. Um, somewhat surprising, and it was certainly a surprise to me, was that in some, sp- in some states where tort reform has been implemented, such as California, the lawsuit frequency is even higher than in other states, leading one cynic uh, to conclude that uh, some plaintiff attorneys make it up in volume. The simple point is that doctors are sued uh, quite frequently. Um, oftentimes, there's, these cases have no merit. How often? Well, um, in Ohio, for example, they looked at how many cases had moved forward, and they recognized that 80% were closed without any payment, leading me to conclude that 80% were shown not to have any merit. doesn't mean that um, malpractice doesn't exist. It does exist. I want to be quite clear on that. It's just that the current system we're using to sort out um, who deserves uh, a remedy and who doesn't fails uh, woefully. So you've talked about claims. There's so many that are frivolous, that, that have no merit. What would be an example? Well, do we know what percentage of the, of the malpractice claims are frivolous and what those those claims are like? Yeah, we know that we believe that the majority of claims that are filed um, do not have merit. doesn't mean that the patient didn't suffer an injury or didn't have a bad outcome. My guess is the vast majority of them are associated with some untoward outcome. But to prevail in a medical malpractice case, the patient and now the plaintiff must prove that the doctor violated a standard of care and that violation caused damages, caused a bad outcome. And I think by putting all those together, uh, what we learn is that the majority of cases that are filed ultimately are shown uh, not to be negligent. Now, somewhat conversely, and this is kind of an interesting statistic, is that there are a number of people who are, who are indeed injured by pure malpractice who never file a lawsuit. 
So one person described it, described our system as um, a system of traffic, li- traffic lights where um, red light means go and the, uh, the green light means stop. It's something that becomes unpredictable and not a good way to sort out uh, who, who is deserving of a remedy. So when we talk about frivolous, in fact, on the show last week, we, we talked to a plaintiff's attorney, and he says that plaintiff's attorney desperately want to avoid frivolous suits. They, they really want to take things that have merit. But it, it sounds like perhaps their idea of having merit is probably things that have a bad outcome, a really bad outcome, that something needs to be done to, to recompense the patient for the bad outcome. But at the same time, if it wasn't the doctor's fault, there needs to be a system where it doesn't come from the doctor. Well, um, I'll find, um, I guess, a common uh, common path or common overlap with some plaintiff attorneys because I do agree that a seasoned veteran plaintiff attorney who is well-trained and knows what he's doing would never want to take a frivolous case, uh, primarily because they don't have to. These are people that uh, can filter um, a case for merit and decide whether it's in their interest to move forward. And by and large, they don't. Those who know what they're doing generally take good cases, cases that are likely to be deemed as having merit. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that um, our, the legal landscape isn't dotted only with seasoned veterans. They're also dotted with second- and third-tier attorneys that don't know what they don't know. In fact, I would call it the, the competition for the, for the seasoned veterans. And so there, the the, the uh, well-trained plaintiff attorney and our organization find uh, common, you know, can serve as common allies because they're not the ones that are filing the frivolous cases. It's the ones who who know not that they know not that are filing those cases. It sounds like one of my favorite things to find is the common ground between people who you would think would be on opposite extremes. And here you have plaintiffs' attorneys. The, the seasoned ones who really, you know, have access to the patients uh, with, with real claims, that have cases that are of merit, that these, doc, the, these lawyers may turn down, um, I don't know, two, three, four, maybe more cases for every one that they accept. And then those lawyers are in the same position you are, same place you are. They won't they, – they, they, they see no need for there to be frivolous cases in the coming up the courts. Right, and the, the, the interesting irony is that um, there is a common ground there because, because there are frivolous cases out there, there's often calls, I'm one of them, who calls for tort reform. And every plaintiff attorney is tarred with the same brush, uh, those who don't know what they're doing with those who know what they're doing. And I think it is in the seasoned veterans uh, plaintiff attorney's interest to try and figure out what can be done so that um, they're not unfairly uh, tarnished by the reputations of those who are untrained and unskilled. Uh, yeah, it, it, I got, I've got to admit, when I first um, uh, talked to um, veteran plaintiff attorneys, uh, they seemed somewhat supportive of our mission. Not all of them, but some of them who, who clearly know what they're doing. Um, I was surprised. But having done this now for eight years, I've found that there is overlap in terms of what we believe a legal system should accomplish. We don't always find common ground, but I think there's certainly points of overlap. I think it shouldn't be surprising that there's this common ground because well, 
What do we doctors see? We see patients who are hurting. We want to help them. Well, what do the plaintiff's attorneys see? They get call after call from people who are hurting and who suffered in some way, and they too want to see that uh, needless suffering uh, not happen and and justice uh, for those patients who who were hurt in some way. So, what what can medical justice do? What do you do to stop the frivolous suit problem? Well, what we've done as an organization is that we take action against those individuals that file frivolous claims. We try and level the playing field. We view that as a means to an end. Uh, We've proposed what we believe to be a serious, um, I guess, proposal for a revised system that would save a great deal of money. So here's the challenge, and I think the challenge creates an opportunity. Um, The total amount of money that doctors and healthcare systems spend on professional liability coverage is about $30 billion a year. I mean, it's a big number, but if you compare that to the overall health care budget, $2 trillion, it's really a drop in the bucket. Um, but the behavior that physicians uh, engage in to prevent a lawsuit, we call it defensive medicine, is on the order of anywhere you know, between 100 and $200 billion, which is a much larger sum. What do I mean by defensive medicine? It's those tests that we order just to be sure. It's those needles we put into the patient's body just to make sure we don't miss anything. It's all the referrals we send out just to make sure that uh, if an attorney comes knocking on my door, I will have the proper answer that did that I did everything known under the sun to prevent an untoward outcome. These untoward and and this defensive medicine comes with a high price, it, and we all pay it. If we could redeploy those funds, if we can redeploy funds for defensive medicine to more productive uh, ends, we probably could provide a health insurance policy for every uninsured American. Well, now here's the thing I don't understand, and maybe, I mean, I'm a doctor, but I almost have a plaintiff's attorney point of view about this, that if those are lab tests or referrals that may catch something that would otherwise land you in court, aren't they things that you should do? You know, I'm, I'm a practicing dermatologist. I see people with moles. There's some moles that I think the likelihood of it being anything is one in a, a thousand, but we still do a biopsy because that patient doesn't want to take the one in a thousand risk that something bad would happen. Um, if if it was a mole that I was certain could not possibly be cancer, well, then I don't do the biopsy. So are you saying that, that, I, that we, we should let those one in a thousand patients just get missed? I think we should probably let people get comfortable with guidelines. And let me give you an example. I think if I give this a specific example, it will color it with what can happen, uh, what can go wrong with um, unlimited testing. Um, so here's a very simple example. A woman, we know that most, uh, well, actually, let me, let me, this will be a real-world example. There was a, um, an individual who was in his late 50s going for an insurance physical for his company. And on his chest X-ray, there was a, um, a calcification, it looked like a calcification, which almost certainly was an old granuloma. An old granuloma is something that's been there for years. Uh, certainly um, nothing needs to be done about it. Uh, if you wanted to be cautious, you would follow it up with another chest X-ray probably in six months just to make sure that it wasn't cancer. But by and large, it has a fairly classic appearance on a, a plain chest X-ray. A spot. For the spot, for yeah, and, and yeah a, a spot with a particular, with very specific characteristics. That if you gave it to a number of radiologists, that say this is almost certainly a granuloma. So here's what happened: they 
they decided, well, let's get a CAT scan. They got a CAT scan, and they said, mm, still looks like a granuloma. Got an MR scan, still looks like a granuloma. Then they decided, well, we're not entirely sure. Let's stick a needle in it. So they stuck a needle in it, and then they dropped the patient's lung. Now, when you drop the patient's lung, you've got to re reinflate it, and they put what's called a chest tube in. Um, and as they were putting in the chest tube, they injured one of the nerves under the ribs. So he was in the hospital for three days, and he had pain now for six months. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the biopsy ultimately came back, and it came back, no surprise, granuloma. The point is, this patient went through, you know, an extraordinary number of tests. I have no idea what the bill was, but at the end of the day, the cost was significant. The the anguish to the patient was significant, and no one was any smarter at the end. Now, it is it is conceivable that this could have come back uh, as lung cancer, but there are other strategies to prevent that, which means let's watch it for six months. Let's see what happens. I think if money were no object uh, and there was absolutely no risk to any of these tests or referrals, why not? And I, I would agree with that. But the challenge is there are... There are um, there are risks associated with these tests, and there are costs. And any time you spend money in one direction, you're taking it away from somewhere else. If we look at our healthcare system. I would argue that our healthcare system um, needs needs additional help, and we probably would be better served in general by redeploying some of these resources to more productive ends. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said there's risks and financial costs. In a world where insurance is paying for everything, well, I don't think the doctors have to worry about the cost. They're supposed to do what's best for the patient. But what's best for the patient may not be those extra tests. It may not be those extra referrals because every one of them comes with some risk that something bad is going to happen. And one may be in, in, in a litigious world feel like, well, I as a doctor am at greater risk if I don't do the test than the patient is from, you know, the risks of whatever we might find, um, a false positive result or something along those lines. Sometimes I wonder if the solution wouldn't be to encourage patients to have a financial stake in in whether they want that test done or not, because that would cut back on the unnecessary testing in a hurry. It would allow them to make an informed decision. If you could basically say, look, I think this is indicated, and there's a lot of uh, juice-to-squeeze ratio, um, that it would be worth doing. It's what I would do if I were in your circumstance. But if, you know, if the doctor is telling the patient, saying, look, if I've got to allocate scarce resources and it's my dollars coming out of my pocket, I'm not sure I would put my money into this. Then there's a shared decision between the doctor and the patient. It's not a perfect decision. There's no way you can make a prospective perfect decision. You hope to be able to make a pretty good, pretty informed decision. And I think that's the best we can hope to do. I think if we do that, um, It'll still be a very good system. Most patients will be kept out of harm's way. In fact, I could argue that uh, patients may indeed be safer. For example, it's been recently shown that all of these x-rays that we're ordering, in particular CT scans, are not risk-free, that there's a cumulative effect of the radiation that can cause cancers down the road. Not a big number, but it's still big enough. Now, the, the doctor who ordered that test will be long gone, um, he will have had the discussion with the patient. The patient will have said, look, I want you to do everything under the sun to make this diagnosis. I'm here in the ER, and the doctor thinks, let me guess. Uh, let me think about this. Someone else is paying for it. Um, it's the path of least resistance. I won't have, have, have to have a long discussion. And if and when the patient gets uh, a cancer from the radiation of the CAT scan, I will be long gone. I mean, is that really the kind of system we want? 
I don't think so. Well, you know, I hopefully, and you know, I have a lot of faith faith in physicians. Hopefully, physicians are doing what they think are in patients' best interest, and not saying, "Well, I don't care what happens to this patient and their cancer down the road." I I just don't see that as as the the real mindset. I, I think of my son and his scoliosis, the the excessive curvature of his back, and we took him to the orthopedic specialist who specializes in backs, and he tells us, you know, we think you should have him get an MRI to make sure there's no cancer there. The, the, uh, curvature of the spine runs in your family, and the likelihood that this is a cancer is incredibly small, but why not just get the MRI and make sure we'll rule it out? Well, if it had been a CT scan and, and there was a risk of cancer, you know, I, I guess I would have thought more about it, but even... The the low risk that this curvature was due to something, I felt, shoot, obligated to spend the hundreds of dollars that were coming out of my pocket, probably thousands of dollars from the insurer, to have this test that maybe some guideline would have said was altogether unnecessary. I think if we can move forward, and that and the question is, what is the path forward? And what I'd like to see um, would be some type of uh, consensus guidelines as to what is considered. I call them better practices. We're all, I don't call them best practices because we're always trying to get better. Even when you think you've got a best practice, it gets displaced by yet something else. But I think that if we could have uh, doctors um, get some type of safe harbor immunity for following guidelines when it makes sense um, and a qualified immunity if by deviating from, from the guidelines it makes sense for a specific patient. Um, put a different way, there'd be there would be motivation and incentive to give uh, doctors certainty that the type of uh, test that they're ordering or the path that they're following um, would not land them in a, um, in, a, um, in a courtroom. On the other hand, they wouldn't necessarily be slaves to these guidelines because all of us are different, and there are u- unique situations where you would want to consciously deviate from particular Guidelines. In those situations, you would merely document why you're deviating from the guidelines. And again, um, if it made sense um, and was um, cohesive, a cohesive argument, there'd be some type of qualified immunity. I think it would get us to a, to a system where patients are safer. They would get better care at lower cost. It would not be perfect. And I would consider, you know, how do you bundle that in with some type of no-fault system for those who are injured? But that may be a story for another day. So a no-fault system. So you're figuring, well, we got $30 billion on liability coverage now. We've got another 100 or $200 billion in the system spent on defensive medicine. Surely we could take that little pile of money and create a no-fault system that, that re- gives patients who are injured, whether the fault of the doctor or not, some kind of way of being compensated uh, while um, giving the doctor safe harbor, while uh, reducing the overall cost of defensive medicine to the healthcare system. Yeah, precisely. I mean, it can be done. We, we, there are models of no fault. They may not be perfect, but it, we, we know it can be done. We would have to manage expectations. We wouldn't be looking at, you know, $30 million settlements, but by and large, uh, workers' compensation, for example, is a no fault system. Uh, if you've got disability insurance and for whatever reason you're disabled through whether a doctor causes you to become disabled or just bad luck, uh, you've got some type of coverage. Um, so as long as the payouts are reasonable, I think it is a doable system. Um, just to give this color, I, I'm looking in front of me of a jury that awarded 
sixty million dollars to uh, to a woman in the Bronx, New York, this past year. My guess is um, that verdict will be uh, brought down to um, to a much smaller number. Uh, but this is a, a case where the patient was having some type of plastic surgical procedure. It was described as a thigh lift, and apparently there were some um, damages associated with this procedure. But I can't imagine how this ballooned up to $60 million. That's part of the problem, of course. If we can get these numbers down to more reasonable, rational numbers, I think we can find consensus um, on, on both sides of the aisle here. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're talking today with Dr. Jeff Siegel from Medical Justice. Well, Jeff, we'll all agree, even the plaintiff's attorney would agree, frivolous claims are bad. They help nobody. We really ought to reduce these kinds of um, frivolous actions. Specifically, what does medical justice do now within our current system to try to help doctors avoid these frivolous claims? Well, what we do is we have um, our physicians and patients come to an agreement that if there is a legitimate dispute, each side will use board-certified experts um, who are members of and follow the code of ethics for that doctor's specialty society. The goal there is to make sure that those expert witnesses that, that help to propel and defend uh, these types of cases are both reputable and accountable, and that is our primary mission. Shoot, that sounds entirely reasonable. We, we believe it is, and what we've learned is that the vast majority of patients are, are likewise reasonable, meaning that the vast majority of patients uh, sign these agreements. We believe it is not only in the doctor's interest, it is in the patient's interest. And, you know, I'm, I'm both a doctor. I've been a patient. Uh, my, my, kid, my, my son has had uh, surgery in the past. Uh, and so I've been on, on all sides, and I think I can take a 30,000-foot view here. So board-certified experts, is that the, the, the single thing that, that, that changes the frivolous actions? Only half. The other half is that they need to be members, um, members of and follow the code of ethics for your specialty society. So, for example, uh, you're a dermatologist. I assume you're a member of the American Academy of Dermatology. Maybe mm-hmm. you're not. But I'm, I'm a member of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, and um, we would want to make sure that each expert is a member of this professional society and follows its code of ethics. In my particular case, the single time that I was sued, the expert had actually been expelled from uh, our professional society. So if I had had um, enough foresight uh, to have my patient sign exactly that type of agreement, I likely never would have been sued. Um, the vast, you know, The majority of Specialists are indeed members of these organizations. What we're trying to do is to eliminate from the pool of available experts uh, those people who have either chosen not to be members of these organizations or have already been uh, disciplined or or perhaps expelled from these organizations. Is arbitration a component of which you encourage doctors and patients to agree to? Uh, Arbitration is not what we do. We are – what we do can – can buttress or supplement arbitration. There certainly are some benefits to arbitration. Um, arbitration is similar to a court system, except that it's uh, a bit more private. You, um, you don't have a judge and jury, and it's not appealable, but it tends to be much quicker, a bit more informal, and no, you know, just as binding. Um, there are many people uh, who, including patients, who think that arbitration is a quicker way to get to a just solution. So the average medical uh, malpractice case 
uh, take can take years for resolution. The average arbitration case is often settled and solved within a year. And I think if you're a patient and uh, you're out of work because of uh, of an injury, uh, you don't have a five-year time horizon. You you need to <laughs> you need to be paid within a year. So arbitration can certainly work for uh, for both parties. I, I have a patient satisfaction survey website. I'm very interested in, in how satisfied patients are with their physicians. The number one thing that affects patient satisfaction is very, very clear. It's how much trust the patient has in their doctor, how caring the patient feels the doctor is. Do you think there's any risk that worrying about malpractice up front with patients and having them sign something related to whether what would happen were there to be a malpractice suit and kinds of what experts you could bring in. Is there any concern that that would affect the patient's, um, the patient-physician relationships in a negative way? It's, a, it's an excellent question, and it was certainly an unknown when we launched this program in 2002, but we now have eight years of evidence that we can look back on. What we've seen is that um, it's actually not a bad idea to have this discussion. It's a good idea. Patients and doctors have all types of uncomfortable discussions uh, early on. Uh, for example, a good informed consent talks about the possibility, you know, talks about what, what's the upside of an operation, for example, but it also talks about the downside. What are the risks, you know, including death, for example? Uh, we think in 2010 that both doctors and patients are better served by this type of candor than uh, hoping that these things won't happen and hoping that everyone will behave in a very predictable, uh, collegial fashion down the road. So what we've seen is that uh, the vast majority of patients are comfortable signing this. Um, it really has not negatively impacted uh, the doctor-patient relationship, and the vast majority of patients seem to, um, I guess, admire uh, those doctors who are ready, willing, and able to have uh, more difficult types of discussions, even if it means talking about um, the medical legal system. When I think of measures to reduce malpractice, the number one thing I would think people would focus on, especially we physicians, would be on making sure the quality of care is so high that you wouldn't have a problem due to medical negligence. Is that something that your organization addresses in any way, or do you start with the assumption that doctors are already doing that? Uh no, we believe the patient safety is an issue in 2010, just as it was an issue in uh, 1998 when the Institute of Medicine published uh, To Err as Human. Um, we think, and believe it or not, that the current medical legal system does little to promote patient safety. We would argue that it actually is one of the drivers preventing a robust patient safety system. So, for example, Many of the uh, challenges that we have in, in the domain of patient safety are due to what I call system errors, problems not with negligence of an individual doctor, but design flaws in, any in an individual institution. And that what you want to do is create incentives so that people who work in these institutions can detect these flaws um, and communicate these flaws to those empowered to take action before it becomes a problem. Not dissimilar to what, to what we have in the airline industry, or not dissimilar to what is done uh, with atomic uh, or with nuclear power plants, um, there people are um, encouraged to uh, detect flaws in the system and to create the um, 
at least templates for solutions. In the um, in the medical world, the reward for disclosure is punishment, <laughs> meaning that if you if you come clean early on with all types of problems, uh, there there you don't really get a um, um, a reward for doing that. You tend to be on the other side, perhaps as a target in a in a uh, in a lawsuit. Now that's not. 100% clear, 100% of the time. But I do think it is an issue, and I think if we change the incentives to think of this as what can be done to address systemic flaws, I think we'd end up with a better system. In a perfect medical legal system, um, you would have deterrence of bad events, and um, you would make injured parties whole. But I think our current system doesn't actually deter um, bad events or unsafe events, I would argue that, if anything, it makes it somewhat worse or perhaps at best keeps it neutral. I don't think the average doctor is out there saying, um, I'm not going to do this or I'm going to do everything I can can possibly do just not to uh, be sued. I think people are going to do everything they possibly uh, can do, not out of, not out of safety, but to keep themselves out of court. You're saying they they are focused on staying out of court, or you're focused? They're focused on being safe. Yeah, I could have said this better. Um, I think that the primary motivation for moving forward, um, a doctor is motivated to keep people safe. I think yes. at the end of the day, he wants to keep people safe. Having said that, though, being in a court is such an onerous uh, affair that they become primarily motivated by what it would take to keep out of court. Okay, that is patient safety is not the primary motivator here. It's what they can do to keep out of court. And going back to the earlier examples I gave earlier, if I were primarily interested in patient safety with the, uh, with the needle in the chest, I probably would have stopped with the chest X-ray and followed up with yet another chest X-ray in six months. By sticking in a needle, I actually put my patients in harm's way so as not to put, you know, if I were the doctor, so as not to expose um, expose uh, myself, my family, to being uh, sucked up into court. Well, that said, let's not put too much uh, heinous motivation on that doctor because the doctor may have seen patients with, a, uh, with lung cancer and may be thinking, well, yeah, there's a risk of putting this needle in you, but, man, if that thing is a cancer, we better know it and get it cut out. So, I think what happens, Steve, is that we tend to discount these risks up front be- you know, focused on the defensive medicine aspect of it. I think that if we brought the patient into a candid, honest discussion and the patient had some skin in the game in terms of cost here, um, each side could make an informed decision as to what is the appropriate amount of risk to benefit for that individual patient. I think the way it stands right now is that the third party's picking up the tab, the doctor is going to make decisions, uh, that seems to be more of a one-size-fits-all, and defensive medicine enters into it. It's not the only factor, but it's certainly a factor, a very expensive factor. Well, for our listeners, I think one of the, one of the points of overlap I think we would share is that patients need to be involved and responsible for their, in the decision-making process. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think that when patients are brought into an honest, candid, candid discussion, um, the patients are served best. I think the doctor finds that to be a more satisfying type of relationship, and um, I see little downside to that. So anything that would promote that relationship is something we could really get behind. Now, one of the ways that 
I've personally worked to empower patients is through online rating of physicians, to, to give patients an opportunity to give their doctors feedback online. The in- Internet makes this a very easy, inexpensive way to do it. You're familiar with, with the way we do this at doctorscore.com where patients can, can give their doctor an online rating and look up ratings. I, I thought this was fabulous for physicians because doctors are doing a great job. The public doesn't always know how great, and by having greater openness – uh, doctors would actually look great. Now, in the, I think there was an adage about um, all publicity is good publicity. And, and, and with regard to that, uh, you and medical justice were in the news sometime back uh, concerning things that medical justice was doing with respect to online doctor rating. You want to tell us about that? Yes. So um, we've evolved our position on this um over a period of about three and a half years, um, we knew little to nothing about uh, online physician ratings um, about three years ago. We became exposed to a doctor who was on the receiving end of a pretty uh, nasty assault. It was a website called MySurgeryNightmare.com. And the doctor was being sued. He was a a plastic or an aesthetic surgeon. Um, The patient was unhappy with the results. She was suing him directly, but also made it her job to alert to the world what a what a butcher he was. And if you looked at the pictures on the website, I think they spoke for themselves. She actually looked pretty good, and the doctor felt that he was um, unfairly being assaulted or targeted. So our initial thought was that the online world um, can be certainly can can be a benefit to the doctor, uh, but it can certainly be a great risk to the doctor. If the doctor wanted to mitigate this risk he would um, have his patient sign an agreement that they would not rate him online or public, publish to the world what he was like online without the doctor's permission. Now, there are certain, certainly some caveats or restrictions on that. patient was free to speak to friends, family, doctors, lawyers, medical licensing board, hospitals, the list goes on and on. Um, but at the time, it felt as if that going online was uh, crea- created more risk than benefit. Um, it turned out that most patients were reasonably comfortable with this type of agreement, but not all. There were some who believed that um, having some element of transparency um, made more sense and could create a better system. Um, our belief is not entirely unaligned with that. Um, we agree that um, patients are better served if they've got good information. Our challenge, I think the challenge, was to make sure that the information was good. Um, First and foremost, we didn't know, and I think most people don't know, if the person posting is actually a patient or is it a, someone posing as a patient. For example, a competitor, an ex-spouse. Or the doctor themselves. You or could the go either, either way. You know, it's interesting. Everybody, or just about everybody, like the frivolous malpractice issue, just about everybody's on common ground. They want to avoid the frivolous, inaccurate skewering or uh, making a doctor look positive with with inappropriate data because good data is is good for everybody uh, absolutely and that's the challenge of course is how, how do you get the good data the other challenge the other big challenge was that um, in you know as Americans we like to debate we're a noisy people and um, if someone makes an offensive comment, um, either in the newspaper, on television, or online, 
uh, the antidote for offensive speech is yet more speech. Yes. Okay, you get, you get a, um, a robust debate, and I think those who founded our country said we, we should debate. Um, ideas should be freely debated. The challenge for physicians is that if a, if a rating goes up and there's a lot of commentary on it, the doctor is foreclosed from reacting. That's there right. Both, you know, federal and state privacy laws prevent him from even acknowledging that the person posting is his patient. That's right. The, the doctor basically has both hands and legs tied behind their back because if they were to respond in any way, acknowledging that this was their patient even, that would violate the the privacy rules in the what's called the HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, um, standards. So these are challenges. It doesn't mean they can't be overcome. In point of fact, I think they will be overcome. The Internet's here to stay. We just want to make sure that the quality of the information that goes out and the information that we would use to make decisions um, isn't like Jerry Springer or the National Enquirer, but it's uh, more like Consumer Report. That's wonderful. Well, Jeff, we're towards the end of the show. I'd like to give you a chance to maybe wrap up reiterate any key points, but especially if you have suggestions for patients for how they can make sure they get the best possible health care, either taken responsibly for themselves or for changes in our health care system, what, what would you tell them? Hey, I'm gonna, thanks for the opportunity here. I'm going to narrow it down to three bullet points. Uh, first, and this is the simplest one, is that to the extent you're going to see your physician uh, bring a list and prioritize, the big challenge that most doctors have right now is their time is limited. And I think if you go in with a written list prioritizing uh, what the problems are in order, you're more likely to come out a happy patient. Number two, to the extent your list is long, I would, pro I would choose the last appointment of the day. And the reason is pretty simple. When a doctor has 10-minute time slots or 15, he feels pressured uh, to get to the next patient. But if you've got the last appointment of the day, He's not pressured. doesn't mean they won't, they won't want you out of the office, but you at least eliminate one of those variables. Um, it is what I do. If I want extra time with a doctor, I ask for the last appointment of the day. And then the final pearl, I think, is, is to, um, if you've got labs that are being drawn, do not assume that no news is good news. Um, that's often the default assumption for the vast majority of my patients or vast majority of patients that are out there, I think if you've heard nothing, you've got more skin in the game than anyone else. Pick up the phone, call the doctor's office, office and get a copy of the lab reports. It is the single best way to prevent something from falling to the cracks. Well, that is excellent advice. And Jeff Siegel, I wish you tremendous success getting rid of, ending the problem of frivolous malpractice claims in the United States. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Steve, thanks for inviting me to talk. Have a great day. You too. I find Jeff's medical justice business to be truly one of the fascinating perspectives of our medical care system. Here we have a company that's devoted to reducing malpractice risk for physicians, for protecting physicians from malpractice. And he feels he has a lot of common ground with malpractice plaintiff's attorneys who themselves probably feel like frivolous lawsuits don't belong in the courts. I think both of these groups, although they may seem like they're at opposite extremes, 
have in mind at their hearts the same thing, protecting patients and, and helping patients get great medical care. I'm sure that the plaintiff's attorneys who have seen medical errors day in and day out are thinking we need to do things to help protect patients. And then I know that the doctors who are spending their lives, devoting their lives to helping patients get great medical care are, like like Jeff Siegel, thinking it really will help us provide patients great medical care if we could do something about the, the malpractice suits that cause people to practice in ways that aren't really in patients' best interest. Now, I think the plaintiff's attorneys do have a point when they say, why do laboratory tests if they're not going to help patients? And that's not going to help protect you from a suit. The whole idea of defensive medicine really is wrong. But I think Jeff's example of this this granuloma, this little spot on the lung in a chest X-ray and, and how further testing and further testing adds not only costs but adds risks to the patient and really doesn't necessarily mean patients are getting better medical care when they're getting more lab tests. In fact, many times doing more lab tests that are of marginal benefit may actually have marginal risks associated with them that could be worse than the disease. One key point I wanted to follow up on was with regard to the specific bullet points uh, Dr. Jeff Siegel ended with, the idea of bringing a list to the doctor. I think this is very helpful. In the heat of the, of the medical care visit, patients aren't always thinking completely straight. They may be a little nervous, and often they'll forget things that were important to them that they had thought about earlier that they want addressed in the visit. And so... I think it's wonderful to have the things listed in writing and prioritized so that the most important things are listed first. That way you really do get to make sure that your needs are getting met. Um, Jeff's third bullet about laboratory follow-up makes all the sense in the world. I think this is something that Jeff and malpractice plaintiff's attorneys would agree on completely, that to make sure something doesn't get lost along the way, take responsibility to make sure you know All your lab tests came back normal. So if you don't hear about a result, contact your physician. I'll tell you, my internist, my personal internist is a perfect 10. Um, Some one to two weeks after my visit with her, I get in the mail from her uh, a copy of my laboratory results, letting me know how I'm doing, whether they showed a problem or not. And I would encourage you, accept no less from your doctor. It doesn't necessarily have to be by mail. It could be by phone call. Personally, I'd even prefer if it were sent by the Internet. But uh, along the privacy issues that that, uh, Dr. Siegel and I were discussing earlier, your doctor probably can't even send you those things over the Internet without your written permission that they be allowed to do so. The most important point I wanted to follow up on was Jeff's point about the last appointment of the day. Try to get that appointment because your doctor will be under less pressure um, and will be able to take care of all those things on your list. I don't think anything could be more true than this. Doctors keep people waiting. They don't like doing it. Um, Doctors really want to get to that next patient. If they're cutting one patient short, Uh, It's only because they feel an obligation to the next patient. If you're the last patient of the day, the doctor gets to sit back, relax, and know that they can spend time with you without without having to worry that they're keeping another patient waiting. And so this is a wonderful time to catch the doctor when they're going to be most focused on you, uh, when they're going to have the least stress, 
least reason to be um, rushing off to get to another patient. It, when, when they do keep patients waiting, it may not be because they don't care about you. It may be because they care so much about other patients and want to make sure that every patient is seen in a timely way. Rushing can be, surprisingly, a sign of a caring physician. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us next time. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.